Hello everybody and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach and I've been your host this summer as we delved into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal was to collect and relay the best ghost stories I could find from each province and territory. This meant I was searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. Welcome to the final installment of this series, Episode 13, British Columbia. Today is certainly bittersweet, as this is our final collection of stories for you. What's nice is that I've been looking forward to telling you these stories for over two months now. This episode will feature a selection of tales from around the province mixed in with a few of our personal favorites that we tell here in Victoria. Speaking of that, why don't we start off with what is likely Victoria's most famous building, and then move to a place in Vancouver equally well known for its ghosts? The Empress Hotel is Victoria's most famous building, perhaps. It stands on the shores of the Inner Harbour and for years was the first thing any visitors would see as they arrived in town via the steamships. It's got quite an impressive look, too, with its brick and stone walls towering up above anything else in the area. It was built to be a part of the Canadian Pacific Railway's series of hotels, and its style of architecture might remind you of some of the places we've covered in this podcast already, like the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa, the Hotel Fort Garry in Winnipeg, and Alberta's Banff Springs Hotel, all of which were railway hotels like the Empress. The Empress was built in 1908, but the Tower Wing was an extension which finished in 1929, a great year to finish building a hotel. It's inside this tower wing that I would like to focus, as while the whole hotel is haunted top to bottom, one of its most famous ghosts resides in the tower wing's sixth floor. Several decades ago, the Empress was accustomed to dropping prices during the wintertime to encourage people to come and stay for long periods of time. It worked. Many people took them up on the offer, especially people from elsewhere in Canada where it can get exceedingly cold with several feet of snow. One of the people who seemed to love this offer was a little old lady who returned year after year. She would arrive in the late fall and stay for long periods of time, and as such the staff got to know her quite well over the years. The hotel was large, with hundreds of rooms, and so they would always accommodate her desire to be placed in the same room each year on the sixth floor of the tower wing overlooking the harbour. In addition to this lovely routine, she would make a habit of taking tea down in the lobby just about every afternoon. If you're staying at this luxurious hotel for such a bargain price, why not live like the Queen, after all? One afternoon, the staff noticed she had not come down for tea. A little bit worried, 
After tea was over, they sent a few people up to her room to check on her and see if she was okay. They knocked at the door, and with no answer, they let themselves in. That is where they discovered she had crawled into bed for an afternoon nap and never woken up. She had passed away. Well, they were sorry to learn this sad information, but work was work, and they called in some officials to examine the body and remove it. Of course, as you'll remember with hotels, they're used to dealing with deaths, and this all went over quite smoothly. Fresh sheets were put on the bed, the room remade, and the window opened a crack to air it out. Eventually, they started putting new people inside, but those people would start complaining to the hotel staff with rather strange reports. The lights in that room would flicker on and off, the television would change channels autonomously, and the window would open during the night, letting in the cold winter air. One of my favorite reports came from a couple who had checked into the hotel, were placed in that room on floor 6, and hopped into bed for an early evening after a long day of travel. They lay down, turned off the lights, and heard the toilet flush. Then the tap run, and lastly, a series of light footsteps making their way toward the bed, around the foot, and stopping by the night table. That was when the covers lifted up, and something very cold crawled into bed with them. Moments later, the couple was downstairs at the desk, asking for a new room. It became known as the unrentable room. Staff gave up trying to put people inside, as no one would last very long in this old lady's space. Unlike the Bamp Springs Hotel, they didn't wall it off and pretend it never existed. They simply never assigned any guests to bed there. This lasted for several years, until finally it came time to convert the top two floors of the hotel, floor 7 and 8, into the gold suites, the fanciest rooms in the whole hotel. The problem was that the elevator only went up to floor 6. To get to 7 and 8, stairs. Well, you can't have your wealthy customers paying top dollar for fine rooms and ask them to lug their suitcases up two flights of stairs. They needed to put in a small, private elevator to get from floor 6 to 7 and 8. Where better to do this than in the room they couldn't make any money with? They gutted the place and turned it into an elevator shaft. Problem solved. Other problem created. Now, it is no longer just one room complaining to hotel staff about creepy things happening to them during their stay, but rather the staff will hear from any given room on the Tower Wing's sixth floor, always with the same story. Say you are staying there and are getting ready for bed when you hear a soft knocking at your door. Not having ordered any room service, you wander over to the door and look out the eye hole into the hallway where you see a little old lady standing there hunched over. She's perfectly harmless, so you open up your door to greet her. She looks up at you and says, I'm terribly sorry to bother you, but I can't seem to find my room. Would you help me, please? What kind of a jerk would say no? Of course you'll help her. You put on some shoes and a jacket, close the door behind you, and begin walking with her down the hallway. She gives you her room number, and you begin counting off the numbers on the passing doors. Right where hers should be is an elevator. Okay, perhaps she's misremembered the number or is on the wrong floor, and you turn to just confirm the address with her and find you are now entirely alone in the hallway. It's long and narrow, with no nooks or crannies to duck in and out of. You're standing there wondering where she could have gone. 
That is when some people realized they've forgotten their room key, and you, like them, head down to the front desk to ask for a new one. They ask why, and you tell them exactly what happened, still a little shaken by it. That's how their staff hears about this lady the most often. In fact, one of the Empress employees came on a tour with me two years ago. He told me before the tour that he had been working there for years but had never been on one of our tours before despite how he had always wanted to come on one. We were thrilled to have him on board, and I took the group to the Empress for our first stop that night where I told this story. Once we were off walking toward the next stop, he ran up to the front of the group and said, Zack, do you tell this story often? I responded that we did tell the story quite frequently, pretty much every night on our 9.30 walks. That's great, he said. I asked him why that was so great. Oh, he replied, because we still get guests complaining about her almost every week. There is a restaurant in Vancouver's Gastown district that opened in 1970, the Old Spaghetti Factory. It's now a chain with locations around British Columbia, along with a few scattered throughout Alberta, Manitoba, and Ontario. The original one is this place in Gastown, and it's certainly very unique with all kinds of antiques displayed throughout the building. The centerpiece would seem to be an actual BC Electric Railway Company car, Car 53 which was built in 1904 and sits in the restaurant and provides a special place for a few tables. The old spaghetti factory is quite popular, especially among families, and its interesting vibe has brought it a lot of attention. In an interview with Gastown.org, the interviewer asked two preliminary questions, which were, where did the idea for the restaurant start, and how did the rail car come to be here? After this, however, the very next statement was, Tell me all about the ghosts. The Gastown location is known for more than just being a fun place to eat and the starting place for such a successful restaurant chain. It's one of the more famous haunted locations in Vancouver. There are many different spirits inside the old spaghetti factory, but of them, four ghosts seem to have drawn the most attention. Near the front is the most mysterious of the quartet, there you'll find a little girl about whom not much is known. She'll be seen at a table holding a balloon. Once, though, the manager's friend was visiting, and was in the seating area while the manager was in the back. This friend spotted the little girl with her balloon and asked her what she was doing there all alone. The girl replied that she was waiting for her mother. There was no lady in sight who looked to be returning to the table, so the friend told the girl to wait there while they went and fetched the manager. Upon returning, both manager and friend discovered the girl had gone. A completely different spirit, which is seen quite often, is that of a short man in red pants and a red shirt, with bright red hair. Apparently, he is quite mischievous. He'll often be seen in the kitchen area, and will call out to the staff by name. The most devious activity he gets up to is when he surprises ladies in the washroom. He'll pop out of a cubicle laugh, and disappear. A woman once took a picture of him, but tragically it developed as nothing more than a blur. About half a kilometer west of the old spaghetti factory is Waterfront Station, 
a place that in the early 1900s was the main station for trains in the city. There was a fatal accident involved with the electric rail company in Waterfront Station, possibly with car number 53. If so, that would explain the next ghost in our collection. He appears to be a trolley conductor who hangs around the car. He must have come in with it, as there are no railway connections with the building's history. He always appears at the same dining table inside the electric car, usually after a closing time. Place settings in that area will be moved, and cold spots will be present sporadically throughout the seating area. He's not so bad. He doesn't do much and is often overlooked in favor of our final spirit. This last one is that of a young boy in vintage clothing who runs around the restaurant. His name is Edward, and he seems to have something of a fascination with cutlery, often putting forks and knives in piles or bending them. No one knows how he came to be inside the restaurant, but perhaps he came in with the electric car as well. In 2012, an employee at the old spaghetti factory had an experience she would never forget. She was closing up around the back end of the restaurant when this boy ran past her. That was odd. The place was closed, and there should have been no more guests. She followed him as he zipped around the place, ducking under tables and whirling around chairs. Finally, she called out to him, and he stopped in his tracks. Slowly turning around to face her, he smiled, and she screamed. His eye sockets were empty. He then ran off around a corner, and she ran over toward the manager. Why? to quit that very moment. British Columbia is a rather large province spanning two time zones, so why don't we go on a little road trip? These next two stories focus on two different roads in BC, each of them haunted, but with very different outcomes. Chilliwack is one of the largest and fastest growing cities in British Columbia with a population of around 92,000 people. It lies about an hour east of Vancouver, and if you're traveling eastbound, Chilliwack is the last large city before you reach the mountains. Initially, I did not find much about Chilliwack in terms of ghost stories, but like really any place in Canada, as we've seen throughout this podcast, every town will have its stories. All you have to do is look in the right places. Chilliwack is known for having a flourishing theatre community, and in 2015, a young couple, Josh and Mariah, were driving back from a particularly long rehearsal one night. It was late, about 11pm, and quite dark outside. They took the usual route along Chilliwack River Road, a long and twisting road that runs just outside the core of the Sardis neighbourhood. Visibility being limited by the darkness and the narrow road, Josh was driving slower than usual, taking his time as they weren't in any particular hurry. As they approached a tight corner, Mariah called out, What are those? Josh asked what she meant. Can't you see them? she asked. He couldn't. 
They slowed to a stop at the corner where Mariah went on to describe lights looking like volleyball-sized spheres at the side of the road on the ground. Josh couldn't see anything, but continued driving, even slower now, around the corner. Only moments later, and not far down the road, they approached another tight corner. There they are again, Mariah called out. Once more, nothing was visible to Josh, though he slowed down to a crawl. Mariah described more lights on the road, but this time they seemed to be driving over them. It was not long until they arrived home, where they went straight to bed. Mariah had always been quite adamant about her views against anything paranormal or ghostly, so Josh decided he would be better off keeping quiet about it. He had not seen what she had seen, but he had an idea about what it might have been. It would require a little research on his part. The next day, he returned to Chilliwack River Road by himself, and drove it in the opposite direction, winding his way along the curvy path. In doing so, he inspected both of the corners where Mariah had seen these large lights on the ground. It turned out that both of these corners had something in common. Crosses. Those were marked locations of past car accidents resulting in the deaths of several people. One of the more tragic accidents on that road was on April 27, 2003. Six kids around age 15 stole one of their parents' cars, piled into it, and drove it up the road. They lost control on the twisting corners of Chilliwack River Road and crashed into a tree. All six teens died. It was a horrible loss and shook quite a number of people in the community. The crosses are still there, just off the side of the road, to preserve the memory of the people that had been taken too soon. With such a sudden and tragic death, it would not be surprising that these teens might still be around in that area, confused or not ready to go on. Perhaps it was the lights of those spirits and others that Mariah saw while they were driving the dangerous road that night. Highway 23 in British Columbia is a longitudinal stretch of road that extends both northward and southward out of Revelstoke, a town of about 14,500 in the interior of British Columbia. The northern branch of Highway 23 runs up to Micah Creek and Kinbasket Lake, terminating in the dead end. Southwards will also take drivers to dead ends, save for a couple of Cross Lake ferry terminals in Shelter Bay and Arrow Park. It is this southern branch that I would like to focus on, as something very mysterious has been recorded there. In the 1970s, Joan's children came running into the house one hot summer evening. They had been sleeping out on the porch to keep cool, but had heard somebody off in the distance crying for help. It sounded as if it were coming from over by Highway 23. Joan ran outside and listened carefully. Sure enough... The faint voice of a young girl could be heard out in the trees, crying, Please help me. Somebody, please. Joan quickly phoned the RCMP, who were over within minutes and investigating that stretch of the highway. 
they found no one. The next day, a neighbor said that he had been outside that evening and had seen a young girl walking along the highway near Joan's house, pushing a bicycle, and crying. He hadn't recognized her, which was curious for a rural community, but assumed it was some unfamiliar child of a nearby family. Many years later, Joan's children had grown older, and Cheryl, one of them, was out riding her horse one night. Trotting along, she discovered a young girl whom she did not recognize. The girl was wrapped in a blanket and sitting by the ditch alongside the road. The girl kept quiet while Cheryl asked her a few questions, which didn't sit well with Cheryl. She rode home to get her mother. Together, Cheryl and Joan returned to the spot where the girl had been seen, intending to offer the girl a ride home in their car. However, when they arrived, the girl was nowhere to be found. They searched the area, calling out for her, but came up empty-handed. Cheryl remembers it being very strange, like the girl hadn't even been real. Just a memory, and nothing more. A third, more suggestive account was reported in the winter of 1980 by brothers Harold and Al. The two guys were driving south along Highway 23 in a dense blizzard, and as they were approaching the ferry terminal in Shelter Bay, they spotted a young girl walking southwards up ahead. She had no winter coat or anything to keep her warm. Fearing she would catch her death of cold, Harold and Al stopped and offered her a lift to the ferry. She declined, saying she was heading instead to Revelstoke. That didn't make any sense. Not only was she more than 50 kilometers out of town, but she wasn't even walking in the right direction. They tried to communicate their confusion and concern to her, but she ignored them and kept walking. There was nothing the two men could do except continue driving to the ferry terminal. Once they arrived, they told the authorities about this girl and how they didn't believe her to be safe walking all alone out in the snow with such poor conditions and ill-suited clothing. The RCMP were summoned once again, and as usual, no one was found. Not even any footprints. point of our episode, I would like to take us back to the 1860s in the Gold Rush days for a story unlike any other on this episode. All of these other stories focus on a historical event and the paranormal things that happen nowadays, but this next one will embed the paranormal right in with the event itself. At the peak of the Caribou Gold Rush, the most important city, Barkerville, had around 5,000 people. Its founder was also its namesake, Billy Barker, who had discovered gold in that region and become quite wealthy. His fortunes turned sour, though, eventually losing most of his money and dying a poor man, although rich in friends, and he's now buried in Victoria's historic Ross Bay Cemetery alongside some of British Columbia's most famous early names, Sir James Douglas, Robert and James Dunsmuir, Sir Matthew Bailey Begbie, and, of course, Emily Carr. Barkerville's population dried up with the dwindling of gold mining in the area, although it was later designated as a historic settlement and now runs all sorts of events and tours. 
It's quite popular for locals and visitors alike, and is a short drive from Prince George, and thankfully, it is no longer the rough and tumble Wild West city it used to be. The barber shop in Barkerville had been run during the city's heyday by Wellington Moses, great name. Among his many customers was a good friend of his, Morgan Blessing, another great name. Blessing had been one of the people to actually strike it rich, and not having been accustomed to such wealth, he was fond of showing off his jewelry and gold to anyone who would listen. Together, Blessing and Moses traveled to the coast one year, and they did so with a third man named James Berry. His name was not nearly as interesting as Wellington Moses or Morgan Blessing, so you can already see that he stood out a little bit, and he turned out not to be such a great friend after all, a wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak. Blessing's riches caught Berry's eye, who decided the gold and jewelry would look much better in his hands compared to Blessing's. He began plotting to turn the two friends against each other, that they might split up and allow Barry to get some quality time alone with Morgan Blessing and his treasures. His efforts worked, and slowly but surely Moses and Blessing began to quarrel with each other. By their return trip back to the interior, Moses had fallen into Barry's trap and became so angry with Blessing that he deserted them and continued on to Barkerville alone. After Moses had arrived back home in Barkerville, it was a few days before James Barry returned to town, now inexplicably wealthy. Morgan Blessing was nowhere to be found. Well, you can safely assume what had happened between Barry and Blessing once Moses was out of the picture. Wellington Moses likewise sensed that some foul play had gone on but had no way of proving it. It turned out he never had to. Over the course of the following year, Barry's carefully laid plans began to come unraveled. Morgan Blessing's body was found off in the woods with a bullet in his brain, indicating he had been murdered. Months later, a woman came forward with a unique pin, one that had undoubtedly been Blessing's, which had been gifted to her by none other than James Barry. Barry was found guilty of murdering Morgan Blessing and was hanged for his crime. While the authorities in Barkerville had been slow to pick up the scent on the fiend James Barry, Wellington Moses knew all along that something dark and devilish had happened once he had deserted his two companions that summer. He had only been back in town for a few weeks when the door to his barber shop had opened and Morgan Blessing stumbled into the establishment looking very worn through and in considerable ill health. His bloodshot eyes met Moses's and without the energy to speak he waved generally at his beard indicating he desired a shave, and collapsed in the chair. All past animosity forgotten, his friend Moses immediately grabbed a warm, damp towel and wrapped it around Blessing's face. He then turned to sharpen the razor. Once finished, he returned his attentions to the chair, but saw that Blessing had vanished. All that was left was the white towel, still damp but now soaked with blood that began to trickle down the chair. Something dark indeed had transpired, and from that moment on, Moses knew that James Barry's days were numbered. Three very haunted classes of buildings, schools, houses, and of course hotels. 
What more could you ask for as we move from Victoria to Vancouver and back again on those BC ferries? Keep an eye out for whales, eh? Remember our friend Robert Service, the poet from the Yukon episode? He came over to North America with dreams of becoming a cowboy, but instead took up a position as a bank teller in Victoria. While he was living on Vancouver Island, he met and fell in love with a woman named Constance McLean from the mainland. No run-of-the-mill bank teller was good enough for her, though. She desired an educated man and declined Service's attention. He didn't give up and started taking courses at Victoria College. They were long and expensive, however, and by the time he finished them, she had married someone else. Robert Service was shortly thereafter transferred to Kamloops, and then finally up to the Yukon, where he became so famous. The Victoria College ended up moving to a new area a little to the northeast in the 1960s, and became the modern-day University of Victoria. It left behind the old Lansdowne campus, though, with all its buildings. One of them, the Young Building, dates back to 1914 and is the centerpiece of the current institution that resides there, Camosun College. As with many old buildings, you would expect this one to have its ghosts, especially when you get a look at it, set far back from the trees up the hill with its clock tower looming large over the rolling lawn. With hauntings, it doesn't disappoint, as some of its employees will tell you. Christine was a security guard who worked there for 15 years. She was a very serious, down-to-earth person, as all security guards ought to be. Over her tenure there, she encountered many strange things, most of which she had perfectly normal explanations for. Most of them. There were a few odd experiences that she could not solve. One evening, as she was making her rounds, she heard noises and voices up in the elevator. Figuring it was two young students, um, getting acquainted, it was her duty to summon the elevator down to her floor and escort these people out of the building. She pushed the button and the mechanism kicked in, bringing the car down from the upper floors. The voices and noises got louder and louder as the elevator car approached, until finally the gears stopped and the doors opened, revealing an empty car in a silent elevator shaft. Another strange experience Christine had was while she was training a new security guard. The young guard-to-be was very excited about visiting the old clock tower which she had always admired from the outside. Christine wasn't thrilled about taking the young woman up there, as it was under construction and was missing some important safety measures, like handrails. As the new guard asked again and again, Christine finally agreed, and they began carefully climbing the ladder to the roof. Once up and off the ladder, Christine suddenly lost her footing and started to fall toward the edge. Before she tumbled off the edge, a hand reached out and grabbed her, steadying her. 
She turned around to thank the trainee for saving her, but saw the young lady hadn't even arrived on the roof yet. She was alone up there. Quickly, Christine ushered herself and the trainee back down inside the building and said, Sorry, not today. While she was very thankful for whatever was up there with her, she was also very frightened. Paranormal investigators have been welcomed into the young building a few times and have collected a treasure trove of EVPs on their equipment, electronic voice phenomena. The Camosun College radio people could have told them that already, though, as they've collected quite an archive of strange sounds on their recordings. Their office in the young building often presented interesting problems with their broadcasts, as their shows were often muddled up with unsettling voices, whispers, and incomprehensible conversations. Alan, a security guard, was another staff member who encountered some uncomfortable things while working there. He was summoned to the young building at 3 o'clock a.m. as the alarm had been tripped. Once Alan arrived, he began inspecting the building and was finding nothing until he arrived in the basement. Suddenly, while walking through the long hallway down there, he sensed that he was not alone. As if on cue, the lights at the far end of the hall turned off, then the next closest ones, then each light in succession shutting off, getting closer and closer to him. You can't manually turn off these bulbs one by one. Alan turned around and left, and never set foot inside that building again. The creepiest story, all in all, has to be Lisa's. She was an instructor there for many years, and one morning she found herself up quite early and walking through the building toward her office. Like any other morning, the building was calm and quiet, but that particular day she thought she was there early enough that no one else was inside with her. Something caught her eye to convince her otherwise, though, in the reflection of the glass doors at the end of the hallway, she could see a co-worker in the hall behind her. He was creeping up behind her in a dramatically goofy way. You know, high knees, tiptoes, arms raised above his head and arched forward. You know the walk. Lisa saw the reflection and laughed, saying, I can totally see you. He didn't respond, so she decided to play along and wait for him to catch up with her. Just before he reached her, the image in the glass melted away into nothingness. She whirled around and found herself completely alone in the hall. No one was to be found. Ian Gibbs, one of our guides and the author of the book where I found this story, poses an interesting question concerning Lisa's experience in the young building at Camosun College. Clearly, whatever was in that building had impersonated her friend. It had seen him enough that it was able to mimic his form, at least within the confines of the reflection in the doors. But why did it do this? It was kind of funny and playful at first. Was it simply doing this to make Lisa laugh? Or was it trying to lure her into a false sense of security by presenting as a trusted friend? I don't know if that's an answer I want to find out.
Susan, Jessica, and Jed grew up in a number of different houses in Vancouver and in Toronto, but the place on the north side of Jefferson Avenue, a few houses east of 12th Street in West Vancouver, was the only one that bothered them. The basement had a family room, a door leading into the garage, and a few other rooms, one of which Susan slept in. In the family room, there was a corner set apart from the rest of the room by a nook, and in that corner was a very bad feeling. No one ever went into it. No one ever put anything there. It just sat empty. Even the dog, Scotty, wouldn't go in the corner or downstairs at all. Susan remembers sitting in the basement writing letters to her friends and feeling like she was being watched from that corner, too afraid to even look in that direction in case she saw something sitting there and staring at her. Jed, always the tough one who hung out with a rough crowd, recalls seldom going downstairs due to feeling frightened down there. He refused to sleep there, instead having the bedroom upstairs. Susan moved from the basement bedroom into his room once he moved to Toronto. That left Jessica to take up the basement bedroom. She was never one to be afraid of stuff like that, but remembers that presence to feel very evil and creepy. One night she was having trouble sleeping in that room when she heard her bedroom door rattling. She always locked it at night as it made her feel safer, but here it was rattling and rattling. Instead of being unnerved, she rolled around and yelled at it to stop bothering her. She had work early in the morning and needed some sleep. It stopped, but only for a few minutes as it began shaking once more. She knew it wasn't anyone from her family as no one ever went down there alone at night except her. She rolled over again, and this time yelled, For goodness sake, either open the door yourself or quit making that noise. I may or may not have edited the language that was used to make this statement more appropriate for the podcast. With that, she closed her eyes and went to sleep in the now silent room. When she woke up the next morning, she found her bedroom door wide open, although it had been locked from the inside the night before. Stepping out into the family room, she noticed the garage door, also locked from the inside, wide open and cold air blowing in from outside. Whatever it was that was shaking her door, it had listened to her. No one experienced anything that explicit again in that house, and they all eventually moved away. The house sold and was quickly torn down with another house built on top now. I would be curious to know if the current tenants have any problems with their basement.
There is a lovely section of Victoria's downtown area called Market Square, used for things like markets, of course, but also festivals and, my personal favorite, Tuba Christmas, where over 100 tuba and euphonium players gather early every December and play Christmas carols for two hours for large, cheering crowds. The square is also lined with big, brick buildings. Once hotels and houses of ill repute, these buildings now host offices, apartments, shops, and restaurants. On the outside of the square, leading onto Wharf Street, is a little white shop called Paboom. It wasn't always a delightful shop with a fantastic name, though. In 1899, it was called the Pilgrim Bakery, and it was run by a lady in her mid-forties named Agnes Bings. Agnes worked the bakery alone, and she had a very particular routine in doing so. Every evening, once she had worked her fingers to the bone, she would close up shop and catch the last streetcar of the evening, which took her up Store Street, over the Point Ellis Bridge, and off to her home in Esquimalt. You could set your watch to Agnes's routine, because if she missed this last streetcar, well, it was a long walk back through the darkness, and it did not start off in a very safe place. Johnson Street, adjacent to Market Square, was at the time Victoria's nefarious red-light district, with saloons and brothels packed into every block. It wasn't the safest place for anyone to be walking alone at night, let alone a woman such as Agnes. Therefore, the streetcar was a must. As this is a ghost story, you can probably guess as to where this is going. One night, Agnes turns the key to her bakery, turns around, and discovers the streetcar has passed her by, and is trundling up the street a few blocks away. She has missed it. She's too tired to run after it and catch it, but she's got to get home somehow. Agnes is faced with two options. She can follow in the tracks of the streetcar and take the long way home, but she's tired. It's not a safe route, and it happens to be bitterly cold out with snow all around. Not a very appetizing idea. Option number two, she could take the shortcut. Those of you listeners who are fans of horror movies or even Scooby-Doo TV shows will know, of course, that the shortcut is invariably the worst idea. Agnes, though, had never seen Scooby-Doo and therefore did not know this. The shortcut in 1899 was not the lovely white bridge we now have with several well-lit pedestrian walkways, but rather it was a rickety old trestle bridge for the Esquimalt and Nanaimo Railway that led over to the rail yards. That, too, wasn't the safest place to be walking around at night, but at least it was a shorter and more direct route, so Agnes Bings began to make her way across the bridge. Her husband, John Bings, was waiting at home for his wife to return, but as the hours ticked by late into the night, it was clear that something had happened. He became worried, and early in the morning, while it was still completely dark outside, he went to the Esquimalt police station and reported his wife missing. The police began their search at the Pilgrim Bakery, and finding a set of tracks that led in the direction of the bridge and hearing some eyewitness reports of a lady locking up and heading in that direction, the police also began picking their way across the trestle bridge. They shone their lanterns down into the freezing waters of the inner harbour, expecting to see Agnes's bloated body floating there, but saw nothing. They ended up in the rail yard, not knowing where to go next. Then, just as the sun was coming up over the horizon, they perceived a clue. It was not the sight of Agnes's body that alerted them to its location, 
nor was it even the smell. A vulture was circling up in the air and diving behind a stationary rail car. They rounded the corner and discovered what was left of Agnes Bing's. She had been strangled first. That much was clear from the bruises around her neck. After that, she had been cut at the chin, all the way down her torso, and opened up. Her ribs had been cracked off and lay in a pile at her feet, and her internal organs had been almost surgically removed, and they adorned her exterior in a grotesque but decorative fashion. Steam was still rising up off her body. If this horrible image seems familiar to you, you can bet that it conjured up one name in particular for the police back then. Jack the Ripper. Only a decade earlier, the world had been abuzz with reports of gruesome murders over in London, England, which were attributed to a mysterious person identified solely as Jack the Ripper. His notoriety did not come from the number of victims, however, only about four to six, depending on which sources you find, but rather he became so infamous because he was never caught. Serial killers tend not to just stop and say, that was fun, I'm going back to accounting now, they either get caught, die, or go someplace else. An awful murder was the headline of the crime published in the local newspapers, and many gory details were put right there in print. People were terrified, and the killer was on the loose. Try as they might, they never found out who the culprit was. While they had some prime suspects, none of them were ever convicted. It remains an unsolved mystery to this day, and while I can't tell you whatever became of the murderer, I can tell you many other things all to do with where the body was found. The whole rail yard was eventually removed, and is now the site of the Delta Ocean Point Resort, which is a very nice hotel overlooking Victoria's Inner Harbor. Despite its lovely walkways and flower beds, once the sun goes down, that point of land takes on a very different tone. Guests staying in the hotel overnight will hear a woman's scream echoing along the harbor walkway. Many people who look out of their hotel windows to investigate will see a woman in grey walking briskly along the pathway. Something about her seems to indicate that she's terrified. The quick way she moves, the wringing of her hands, constant looks back over her shoulder and a very nervous expression on her face. Or at least that's about all you get a chance to see before she disappears into the darkness. Several years ago, one of our guides, Chris, was leading a ghost walk where he included the story of Agnes Bings in the Delta Hotel. A man in the group came up to Chris after the tour was finished and asked if there was any way Chris was pulling a fast one on him and making up the story. Chris said no, as we get many of our stories from places like the BC archives and old newspaper clippings. The man's face grew pale. When he was younger, he was living in Victoria and had been dating a girl to whom he had taken quite a shine. The two lovers had become so enamored with each other that they were considering getting engaged. Interestingly, it broke apart when she told him about seeing a woman walking around the base of the Delta Hotel who she took to be a ghost. The man scoffed at her, asking her to tell him she didn't really believe that, did she? She was adamant about what she thought she saw. Apparently, he was not willing to marry someone who believed in that sort of nonsense, and broke off the engagement. 
It wasn't until he was back in Victoria, years later, that a different woman, whom he had married, heard about the ghost walks and thought it would be a fun outing. He was dragged along, expecting to strain his eye muscles from rolling them for an hour and a half, but he ended up with something else that cast his old fiance in a very different light. When it comes to ghosts and hauntings, our sense of sight is not always the first one to let us know something is amiss. Usually, our bodies will sense something is off. We won't feel right. The last aspect of the Delta Hotel, which I will mention, centers entirely on that. There is a spot in the lobby of the hotel which sometimes when you walk through it, you will be gripped by a sense of sudden panic. Your heart starts pounding and your blood gets pumping. You feel the hairs on your neck stand up. It feels like somebody is behind you, close behind you, and that it's somebody who wishes to do you serious harm. The feeling intensifies to the point where something in you cries out that you need to get away from there and fast. You take three quick steps and the feeling stops sharply. You're left looking like an idiot who has just sprinted a few steps in a hotel lobby for no reason. That spot has been there longer than the hotel itself. Construction workers would discover their electronic devices would falter and die when working in the area or passing through. People walking through the old rail yard would have similar panicky experiences. That, then, would be the spot where they found Agnes's body. Those horrible sensations that overcome you are likely the last feelings she experienced while alive on this earth. It's left a mark, and a strong one at that. The reason I believe that it stops so sharply after just three or so steps is that perhaps that's about as far as she got before she was caught. The Delta Ocean Point Resort is certainly a very lovely place with fine rooms and excellent views of the Inner Harbor, but it does have its dark side. If you're ever curious as to what it's like to be murdered without the nasty side effects of, you know, passing on, head on over to the Delta Hotel. Tell your friends about it. It's an experience people are just dying to try. This is it. We've come to the very last story from Ghost Stories of Canada. It's one of my personal favorites, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you today. Before I can, Let's break one last time for some special announcements. First, I would like to acknowledge that aside from the Empress, Agnes Bings, and this last one, these stories are not my own, nor have they been collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2018 by Touchwood Editions and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo, or in stores pretty much wherever you can find new books. You'll notice this book has appeared in almost every episode of the series, and that's because of how comprehensive it is concerning this whole country and how many excellent stories it contains. For each one that you've heard, there are five more in it that you haven't, do yourself a favor and go pick it up from your nearest bookstore. Ghost Stories of the Rocky Mountains by Barbara Smith, 
published in 1999 by Barbara Smith and Lone Pine Publishing, and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo. A Strange Little Place, The Hauntings and Unexplained Events of One Small Town, by Brennan Store, published in 2016 by Brennan Store and Llewellyn Publications, and available on Amazon and Chapters Indigo, as well as in many stores across BC. If you can, grab yourself a copy. Victoria's Most Haunted, Ghost Stories from BC's Historic Capital City, by Ian Gibbs, published in 2017 by Ian Gibbs and Touchwood Editions, and available on Amazon and TouchwoodEditions.com, or in stores anywhere in BC. It's quite a hit, and I can't go anywhere without seeing it. Not schools, not libraries, not even BC fairies. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab, and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and very helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in a review, consider writing from Victoria to St. John's and from Toronto to Teloyuak. I don't think I'll ever sleep soundly in this country again thanks to this podcast. Or, of course, something like that. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. A big thank you to Maria for her message and Facebook comment. We look forward to seeing you out on a tour next time you're in town. Also, a huge thank you to all who were associated with these episodes, from tour companies to each and every author. You all do such wonderful work at making Canada a special and spooky place. Lastly, even if you're just tuning into this for the first time, and it's not even 2019 anymore, thank you from the bottom of my heart to all of you listeners out there. It's one thing to research and write these stories, but it means the world of me to see such a positive reception. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast this summer, and I wish you all the best for the remaining weeks of warm weather. Next time you're in Victoria, please do come out and say hi on one of our tours. It would make our day. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2 o'clock p.m. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30pm for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street, outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception is our Chinatown Daytime History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street, outside the Starbucks. For the very last time, I will direct your attention to a dark corner of Canadian history and introduce you to our very good friend whose name is Joe Nuwana.
The land where the Empress Hotel in Victoria now stands wasn't always land of any kind. What could be found there was actually water. James Bay was the city's name for it, and its Lekwungen name used by the Songhees Nation was Wasakum, meaning place of mud, as it was a shallow bay used for harvesting clams. Factories began to line the outsides of it, pouring their gunk and garbage into it. Dead animals like horses or pigs would occasionally wash into it and not drain away, rotting on the ocean floor at low water. With the new legislature buildings having been erected right next to it in the late 1890s, the city decided to fill in the bay. It took them five years, and afterwards they built the Empress Hotel on top of it, on very large, thick stilts driven deep into the ground so that it does not sink. Back in the 1870s, long before filling in the bay was ever a thought, there was a row of shacks that had cropped up along the south side of Humboldt Street, which people nicknamed Kanaka Row, after the Hawaiian folks that lived there. Kanaka was the word the Hawaiians used to refer to themselves as a people. One of these shacks was home to members of the Nuwana family. Just a husband and wife here, but they had many Nuwana relatives all around the Pacific Northwest. One relative who they, like everyone else, wanted nothing to do with was their cousin Joe. Joe was 16 years old, and he lived on San Juan Island, an American island not far from Victoria. It was there that he would be found wandering the town looking for work of any kind. A delivery boy, a servant, a cook, a gardener, anything. People kept turning him away because of his reputation for violence and crime. Finally, Joe came across two people he did not know, Harry and Selina Dwyer. They were a married couple in their early twenties who had a parcel of cleared land in the forest away from town and tended a farm there. They needed some help, so they brought Joe in to share some of the work, not knowing anything about him or his checkered past. Joe worked with the Dwyers for months, getting to know the place inside and out, and he discovered how well off the Dwyers were, how much money they seemed to have, and what nice jewelry was in the home. He began to want these things for himself. He hatched a plan where he went into town and borrowed a gun from his friend, who he later tried to blame for the incident to no avail, and Joe crept up to the Dwyer farm where he found Harry plowing the field, facing away from him. With a steady aim and all the time in the world, Joe readied himself and pulled the trigger. Crack went the gun and down went the man, after which Joe rushed up and to ensure Harry would never get up again, he stomped and clubbed his skull in beyond recognition. Selina had been sitting on the porch, knitting for her expected child. She was eight months pregnant at the time. She saw the whole thing and screamed, ran inside, locked the doors, and barricaded the windows. Joe still found a way in. Remember, he knew the place inside and out. He found Selina cowering under the kitchen table and shot her in the head and chest. With nobody close enough to hear the gunshots or the screaming, Joe now had as much time as he wanted to ransack the place, grabbing everything he could fit into his bag and pockets, including the money, jewelry, two gold watches, and walking back in through the kitchen he noticed a glint of gold in the pooling of blood on the floor, Selina's wedding ring. He could sell that for good money. He bent down to retrieve it, but found it would not come off her finger. What had slipped on and off so easily at the time of her wedding was now stuck after eight months of pregnancy. 
To remedy this, Joe went to the drawer and grabbed a serrated knife, and Joe Nuana pocketed the ring along with the finger to be dealt with later. He skipped town after that and ended up on Humboldt Street in Victoria, knocking on his family's door. They were hesitant to invite him in at first. They knew what trouble he could bring, but eventually conceded and let him stay for a few nights. Joe dumped off his stuff and walked up to Johnson Street, that red-light district I talked about, to his favorite pub where he planned to spend a good portion of his evening. While he was still out, his family heard an even louder pounding at their door and opened it to reveal two big burly men, the San Juan Island Police. They were looking for Joe. Where could they find him? The police were given directions to the pub where they found him slumped over one of the tables, half unconscious. They grabbed him and dragged him back to their ship, where he was chained to the mast and sailed down to Port Townsend on the mainland of what would become Washington State, to be tried and hanged for the murders. The Dwyers were well-known and well-loved. Harry was from San Juan, and Selina was the daughter of a popular publican on Trout's Alley here in Victoria. Therefore, boatloads of people descended to Port Townsend to see whoever this brutal criminal was have justice served. They were taken aback when being led to the gallows was not some hulking maniac, but rather a skinny, frail teenaged boy crying his eyes out. He begged for mercy, but his pleas fell on deaf ears. They placed him up on the platform to begin the hanging procedure, but paused. They had never hanged anyone in Port Townsend before. Joe was the first. As such, they didn't quite know how to go about it, and they did a few things wrong. They did not tie the noose correctly. They did not put a bag over his head. They did not tie his limbs together, and most importantly, they did not account for Joe's weight, or lack thereof. The weight of a regular, healthy person would cause their neck to snap instantly when their body dropped, but Joe was so light that there was no snap. No, when his body dropped, Joe Nuana simply bounced. He then began to cough and sputter, gasping for air as his eyes bulged out and his arms and legs writhed in the air. He tried pulling the rope around his neck down lower to take pressure off his throat. Twisting and convulsing, Joe was a horrid sight for the crowd to witness, a crowd which, by the way, had many children in attendance. Hangings were seen as a form of public entertainment, albeit a very macabre one, and children were certainly allowed to watch eagerly. Those witnessing Joe's botched execution, however, were not entertained in the least. This was disgusting. They started to throw things at the spectacle, and the hangman, not knowing what else to do, grabbed Joe in a big bear hug and tried to manually snap his neck, which did not work. Hangings are supposed to be quick and easy, and what should have taken a moment took between 20 and 80 minutes, according to various reports, before he was unconscious enough that they could cut him down and bury him on the spot. No more hangings in Port Townsend after that gruesome display. Above Joe's body, where the gallows used to stand, is now ironically a children's playground. That's where you would expect Joe's ghost to appear, and yes it does. A thin Hawaiian teenager with ragged clothes and no shoes paces menacingly back and forth. Screams are heard coming from the park at night. That's nothing, though, compared to what happens along Humboldt Street in Victoria. 
you see Joe came back as what the Hawaiians call an uhane, meaning roughly wandering or desolate ghost, and he came back with one purpose. He knew who had turned him in. It had obviously been his family, and he appeared outside their shack the next night. His family knew what trouble this spirit could bring them, and they got out of town as quickly as they could, leaving Joe's spirit to continue wandering up and down the street looking for revenge. Never having been able to lay his cold, dead hands on his family, he takes out his anger on passers-by. If you do not see Joe, the same image of an angry young Hawaiian man pacing back and forth, you feel him. Cold hands gripping you by the shoulders and thrusting you up against the walls of the Empress Hotel which now stands there. If you're not so lucky, he throws you to the ground in the opposite direction, out into the street in front of passing cars. While the Hawaiians have a rich set of descriptions concerning ghosts, energies, and spirits, they also have ways to help these spirits move on. Usually, an uhane that has stuck in the between world with no body and no escape will require a Hawaiian priest to come by and bless it, and guide it to the next life. Failing that, a little bit of Hawaiian folklore may just save your life. If you encounter a dangerous spirit such as Joe Nuana, a way to protect yourself and make it go away is by making the uhane laugh. Apparently, the only way to do this is by turning away from it, dropping your pants and bending over. This will make it laugh so much that it will disappear and leave you alone for good. So a word to the wise. The next time you are walking along Humboldt Street in Victoria, and you notice someone following you a bit too closely, you know exactly how to deal with them. Goodbye, everyone. Good night, and above everything else, sweet dreams.